This morning, we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy once again, and our passage will be the last verse of the book of 1 Timothy. Here, verses 18 through 20 of 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, this charge, solemn obligation, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Lord, we've had the privilege of coming to the Lord's table this morning and remembering the reality of Christ crucified. And we pray now you would take the word of God, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes to the truth that you want us to know in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe in teaching through books of the Bible or sections of books of the Bible. I've been in 1 Timothy 1 for several weeks now. And that's called expository preaching. And one reason I believe in doing that is that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So that... The man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as you go through books of the Bible and go, you know, paragraph by paragraph, section by section, you're going to hit speed bumps in your study of the Bible that you would not normally run to. And I've got to tell you that if I was going to preach eight messages on 1 Timothy, the book, I would not run to 1 Timothy 1, verse 20. I just wouldn't. It's a difficult text. And yet it's profitable for us. It's good for us to, to, to grapple with these things. And we're going to grapple this morning with an issue that's broadly spoken of as church discipline. Paul says that there is a group of people in Ephesus represented by two men named Hymenaeus and Alexander who have rejected a good conscience. A good conscience is the way of thinking and making decisions that's heightened and informed by the Word of God. They have rejected a good conscience, pushed it aside, and therefore they have made shipwreck their faith. And Paul says, as a result of that, these two men who are representatives, these two probably leaders of this faction, Paul says, I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme or to speak against some of the teachings, the central teachings of the Christian faith. It's a strong statement. And we saw last week that, that to be shipwrecked is to live in such a fashion that either through moral laxity or doctrinal divergence or through indifference, we shipwreck our faith. We strand our faith. We bring discredit to the cause of Christ through doctrinal deviation, moral laxity, or through indifference. And I said last week that when someone's faith is shipwrecked, 
there are three things we should remember. Number one is when somebody's faith is shipwrecked, we are not to say with great certainty, I, their, their faith is shipwrecked, but I know that they are Christians because we don't know their heart. The, the Bible says, by their fruit you shall know them. Not, not by their words, by, by their lifestyle. And I mentioned in Matthew 7 where Jesus says that many will come to me on that great day and they will say to me, Lord, didn't we preach in your name and perform miraculous deeds in your name and healed in your name? And Christ said, I will tell them very plainly, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Strong passage. So, so we don't know if they're saved, so we, just, we should never say, I know that he's not saved. You don't know his heart. Or to say, I know that he or she is saved because you don't know their heart. So it's our responsibility to plead with them and to talk to them and to say, consider the great things of Christ. Repent. Number two, when somebody is shipwrecked, we, are, we don't know if it's episodic, that's going to last for several weeks or a few months, or if it's permanent. We just don't know. So our response is to plead with them and to love them. Thirdly, when you're shipwrecked, it always brings devastation and destruction and sorrow to your life and to the, to the church of the living Christ. It hurts. Sin is destructive. It tears down. It's odious. It's vomitous. It's cancerous. It's, it's, it's bad. So, we, we should be very aware of that. Now, in, in 2 Timothy, there's this issue of doctrinal error. For example, chapter 2, verse 14 of 2 Timothy says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. But you, Timothy, pastor of the church in Ephesus, you do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And that includes two people he mentions who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. In other words, the resurrection has already happened. Heaven is sealed. It's done. And Paul says they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in this passage, departing from iniquity is depart from impure, ungodly, unapostolic, God-dishonoring doctrine. To depart from it, get, be done with it. And then he goes through this little paragraph where he talks about uh, that we should cleanse ourselves from these things so we can be used of the Lord. And then he says this in verse 22, and I find it a little confusing. Until you really drill down. Verse 22 says this, but flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I said, no, wait a minute. The previous paragraph before the illustration is talking about doctrinal deviation. It's talking about heresy. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Avoid irreverent, silly, unapostolic babble. Okay, but now in verse 22, you say flee from youthful lust. Now what's the deal here? And here's the deal, I think. That flee from youthful lust, impure teaching church 
will oftentimes lead to moral failure. Impure teaching will lead to moral failure. God can't be trusted. Is God really good? What what did the, the devil say to Eve? Has God really said? Can he be trusted? That type of thing. Or moral failure will lead to doctrinal deviation because you're trying to find a reason to live the lifestyle that you are wanting to live in order to support the attitude you want to bring to the table. So moral laxity leads to doctrinal deviation. Oftentimes, doctrinal deviation will lead to moral failure. That's what you call being shipwrecked. And it's all the more important to think well in our day and age. There have been some recent articles written, and there's some books coming out. They talk about the summer of love, 1967. Picture from 1967. We used to dress that way. Okay, just. Now, here's, as we're talking about 1967, 50 years ago. Um, I think we can get that off now. 50 years ago, did you, did you realize that 60% of Americans living today were not born in 1967? 60%. So if you remember 1967, you are a fossil. You're old. And if you ask somebody who lived and remembers those days to recount what happened in those days, you need to speak very loudly and stand next to them so they can hear. Okay? But there are several sociologists that I respect. Some are writing a book that says that the, a pivotal year in the landscape of the American psyche, American thinking, was 1967 through 1968. That there are some, some, some things that were released. Pandora's box, you know, Greek mythology, Pandora's box was opened, and some things came out. And we are reaping the consequences of those ideas. Ideas have consequences. A la Robert Weaver, Richard Weaver. So I just have consequences. There's an article I read, a cover story in the Weekly Standard, released three weeks ago. And they talked about the summer of love. It was in San Francisco. It was uh, free drugs, free groceries, free sex, free everything. Let me just read two paragraphs. This is a very well-written article. Where it, uh, it says, they, the practitioners, never seem to doubt that their antinomianism, which means to be against the law, you know, no standards. Their antinomianism was the surest way out of this cul-de-sac of living that they had been introduced by their parents. But there was a Puritan small p streak in them too. These children are the middle and upper middle classes of America, the spawn of the greatest generation. They went to San Francisco to start a party, but the party had to stand for something other than self-indulgence. A high-minded justification was wanting. There were plenty of brainy publicity-minded shamans or holy men around like Harvard professor and LSD advocate Timothy Leary or the pantheist philosopher Alan Watts who provided it. And so LSD wasn't just an enjoyable, if risky intoxicant. It had to be a gateway to a new reality or if you uh, were really lucky to God itself. Sex, no matter how overworked, was a means of achieving personal authenticity and throwing off bourgeois shackles, the avoidance of work, was a noble attempt to end-run the soul-deadening mechanisms of capitalism and create a new economy without money, toying with half-baked 
Americanized versions of Eastern mysticism, a la Hinduism and Buddhism, was a way of transcending the limits imposed by Judaism and Christianity, leading to new realms of the spirit, small s. In other words, you open the door. You open the door to issues, especially, I think, the sexual revolution that we have seen come out like gangbusters in our day. Therefore, we have got to be people who walk in awareness and to know our culture. I would plead just know your culture. Know that we are children and grandchildren of this revolution. So let me introduce you to the paradigm I've talked through the last few weeks. Number one, God is gloriously good in his triune glory. God is good. He is glorious. He is the king. Number two, well, let me just say this. I was in the uh, worship center earlier doing the Lord's Supper with those people, and they were singing a song uh, that celebrates the greatness of our salvation. And these old hymns uh, just just speak with, listen, "When when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, Faultless to stand before the throne. Christ alone, cornerstone. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him, in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. In other words, my standing before the living God is only because of Jesus. Nothing I can do. And then it goes on and says this. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. You know the hymn. Let me just, the, the older versions of this hymn, the words are a little bit different, and I, I quite frankly prefer them. When darkness hides his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. See the difference? When darkness hides his lovely face, do I believe that the living God in Jesus is absolutely astounding, lovely, and glorious? Or are we just saying here? Fairest Lord Jesus, one stands a beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations. Do I really believe that Jesus and his character is glorious and beautiful? So, so God is and he's gloriously good. Number two, God is a speaking God. A man named Solzhenitsyn, a Russian writer who died a few years ago, stood up to the, the totalitarianism of the Soviet system. And he had a line, he said, one word of truth is greater than the whole world. And I would say that one word of truth trumps everything else. You can talk to people that are incredibly bright and intelligent and winsome and well-read and with it. And when they start saying, well, it seems to me that doesn't have the same weight of thus saith the Lord. See, we believe that God is a speaking God and he has spoken. And so we bow in submission to his revelation. Thirdly, he desires his glory and my welfare and happiness. I love this. First Timothy 1 verse 10 talks about why the scripture is given is, is, is to correct people. And he says this, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the happy or blessed God with which I've been instructed. Sound means life-giving, life-affirming, life-enriching. Same word is used in chapter 6, verse 2, where he says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the teaching that accords with godliness, the sound words of Jesus, the life-giving words of Jesus, the enhancing and welfare-producing life and words of Christ. So we come to this issue this morning in 1 Timothy, and a companion passage will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So I've read 1 Timothy. Let me read chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 to 5. Background, uh, Paul is writing to this church at Corinth, a church that is in a city of incredible uh, license and secularity, and, and he just, he's talking about in the church there is a young man, Paul says, who's doing something that even the pagans blush over. A young man is living with what we believe to be his stepmother in open adultery. Uh, so a woman has forsaken her husband and is living with her stepson. It's a really seedy story, but it's here, and we need to think through it. Okay, so listen to verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. And we say the pagans of Corinth, that's a law, that's a big statement. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. You, you just kind of throw up your arm, no big deal, you say. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 3, for though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Strong. Paul says, when you're gathered in worship, I'm with you in spirit. And so you are to make a statement that this man is taken out of the fellowship of the church so that he may be chastised and brought back into the fellowship of the church. Just a few principles. Number one. First Timothy says, among whom are these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander? So that there is a significant faction of the church at Ephesus that departed from doctrinal truth. And, and Paul says, I have, uh, I have handed these men over to Satan. So they'll be taught not to blaspheme. And I read this and I go, it is easy, listen to me, it is easy to be lulled to sleep and find yourself shipwreck. It, it's easy to just... Be there as you float along. I'll say this, I'm not making a prediction, I'm just making an observation. There are people worshiping here today in our worship services that in five years will be shipwreck because of moral laxity, because of doctrinal deviation and just indifference. That they're going to be shipwrecked, that they're going to be just doing nothing or maybe living in an ungodly fashion, but they'll be shipwrecked. And I say to you, I say to myself, be very careful. Be very careful. Understand that you really do need the body of Christ. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need people in your life. Uh, one thing that keeps me humble, and I say this without any uh, false humility. I, I can take this piece of paper. I've been around a while. And I can list 15 to 20 men who have fallen into sexual sin who are more godly than I will ever be before they fail. I can. 
And it keeps me humble. And I say to myself, you can shipwreck. It's gonna, it, it, it can happen. And that's why I, I love the statement in 1 Corinthians 9 where the Apostle Paul is talking about living as an athlete and training as an athlete. And this is, this is the, the Apostle Paul. He's quite a guy. And he talks about, I don't run aimlessly. I don't beat the air aimlessly, but I live with intentionality and purpose. And then he says this in verse 27. He says, but, but I discipline my body. And I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself may be disqualified. And really, discipline my body can be translated, I beat my body black and blue. Not literally, but I, I, I watch myself. So that after I preach to others, I won't miss out on hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, and be shipwrecked as an older man. And I think of one of the Rocky movies, I don't know if it's Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, Rocky 23, but in one of the Rocky movies, Rocky's training and he's doing these sit-ups. And as he does, as he brings his body up, Mickey beats his stomach, one, two. I thought, man, he's the man, now, Rocky. That, that's the picture here. I guard myself. I, I watch over myself. I'm very careful. Therefore, I must be vigilant. I fight the world. I fight the flesh. I fight the devil. It's an ongoing reality. Um, number two. The purpose of church discipline, and we'll see this, is to reclaim and to love is never to be vengeful or unloving or punitive. It is to restore and embrace brothers and sisters who've shipwrecked, potentially. One of the key verses is Galatians 6.1. This is such a beautiful verse. Paul says, if a brother or sister is trapped in sin, trapped and snared, you who are spiritual Go and restore him with a spirit of gentleness. And watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, a brother or sister is trapped in sin. You go and you do it with gentleness. You know, nobody, here, nobody here is above being shipwrecked. Nobody here is above sin. We all deal with, with issues every day of our life. And it's by God's grace we stand firm. Therefore, when we go to a brother or sister that is shipwrecked, we do so with a gentle, gracious spirit. And we do so as we watch ourselves, these two, we too be tempted. We, we, we do it with grace and, and we do it with brokenness and love. Nobody here has it all together. So, for example, <clears throat> you are your brother's keeper. Hmm. Uh, an outlandish example. You're on the walk in the morning, one morning and you go by a playground and in the playground there's an enclosed place with slides where children go to play and in this park with this playground that's enclosed, as you walk by, you're just out, you see some, something moving in the corner and you look over and there's a nest of uh, rattlesnakes. And you go, wow, and you don't have your phone, so you're, 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 making a hard, you're making a hard charge to find a phone to call animal control to say, we've got a problem on this playground, and, and we, we've got to shut it down, and whatever. And as you, as you go out, a bus pulls up, and now it gets a kindergarten class. 
And he said, good morning. He said, where are you going? The teacher says, oh, we're going to that enclosed playground over there to play. It's our play hour. And we're taking our children, our kindergarten class, to play on that playground. You have two options. Option one is to say, you know, you shouldn't do that. There's some deadly snakes. I'm going to call animal control. You should get your children back on the bus and go back to the school because this is a bad place for them to be. Or, or, or option two is to say, eh, life is a great teacher. Maybe they should just go over there and see what happens. You know, this is a day they will never forget. See you later. Now, if you did that, you should be charged with criminal conduct and put in prison. As believers, listen, when we see a brother or sister shipwrecked and we do nothing, we say nothing, we don't plead, weep, pray, it's like a person saying, they're deadly animals over there, but hey, have a good day. We are our brother's keeper. I love to talk to millennials because they just have a good way of saying things. And so I talk to millennials and they'll say things like this. Uh, I'm looking for community. I love that. I'm looking for, I'm looking for community. In other words, I, I need fellowship. And, and let me, you know why you're looking for community? All of us are looking for community? Let me tell you why you're looking for community. One major reason is God made you in his image, and God is a community God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has always been in community, and he will always be in community, and he made you for relationship. No matter if you're wildly extroverted or if you're introverted, he made you for relationship. So when you say, I'm looking for community, you're expressing a God-given need. But another reason... I'm looking for community is I need people who will watch over my soul. So every time I go to man to man on Friday morning, sit at a table with a bunch of guys and we have breakfast and talk and pray. I'm saying, I need you to watch over my soul. Every time I go to my community group and sit with these people, I'm saying in essence, yes, I want your friendship, but I need people to watch over my soul to help me. Because we're responsible for each other. You need to be in a local body of believers, a local church, because the Bible says that elders have been appointed who must give an account for the way they watch over your soul. Hebrews 13. So I'm, 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 I need that. I was reading Ecclesiastes, a book written by a bitter old man who blew it. And he's looking back and he says, two are better than one. For they have a good return on their labor. So if one guy's accosted, he may be taken down. But if he's got a buddy standing back to back with him, they're going to stand strong. That's a paraphrase. But two are better than one. I need the body of Christ. I need brothers and sisters in my life. I'll tell you a story. I didn't tell the last hour of this. I'll tell you. So as the hurricane was coming that missed us, I was in a prayer meeting with one of our elders, and he said, you know, uh, God give us grace because hurricanes are a major stress on marriages. I thought, well, yeah, they really are. He said, you know, it's just hard. And so after the hurricane, my wife and I were cleaning the yard and raking and carrying off and putting stuff up that we put up and hanging stuff up we took down. And, and you know, you'd been on the emotional edge for several days and so we were kind of not doing great, and she would say this, and I would kind of sort of listen, and there was a friend there with me, and I kind of said, oh, my soul, this has been a hard day. And he said, well, it's a hard day because you're not listening. 
I want to say, hey, dude, we hang together, remember? You know, if us guys don't hang together, we're going to be hopelessly outnumbered. But he said, you know, you're not, you're not listening to her. You're doing your own thing. She said, just, just, just listen better. Just one sentence. And I thought, I got it. But it, it was a correction I needed. The rest of the day went better. Not perfect, but better, you know. I need people in my life. Number three, if I am unrepentant and open known sin, there are consequences. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about people misusing the Lord's Supper. They came to the Lord's Supper and they ate all the food and they were arrogant and they lived lives that were reckless. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now listen to this. That is why Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But Paul says there are people in the church of Corinth, they come to the Lord's table and they abuse it and they mock it and they belittle it and they're not living lives that are in keeping with their profession. And because of that, there are people here in your church, he says, who are, he says, weak, ill, and some have died prematurely. And you go, Wow. So here's my illustration point. If you're a believer, and that represented by the stick person, if if you're a believer, there's safety and refreshment and protection and covering in the body of Christ. But if you are a professing believer and you are shipwrecked and you are walking away from the things of the Lord, you're outside of that protection and, and it's not good. It is not good. God will not be mocked. There's a little book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's just the first of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and it is so good. And it's a mythical kingdom that's ruled by a great lion named Aslan, who represents the person of Christ. And in the first book, uh, the children who've come from England and the talking animals are longing to see Aslan, who rules the kingdom. And I'm just going to read three or four paragraphs. And then the next thing they saw was a pavilion pitched on one side of the open place. It was a wonderful pavilion, it was, especially now when the light of the setting sun fell upon it, with sides of what looked like yellow silk and cords of crimson and tent pegs of ivory, and high above it on a pole a banner which bore a red lion, fluttered in the breeze which was blowing in their faces from the far off sea. Well, they were looking at that, they, they, they heard a sound of music on their right, and turning in that direction, they saw what they had come to see. They saw Aslan and a group of creatures, including centaurs and talking trees, singing and making melody around the great lion. It says this, as for Aslan himself, the beavers... And the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. 
And so they started saying, you speak first, you speak first, you speak first. I read that and I thought, you know, the, the, the truth is that the living God in his triune glory is good, but he's also a God who is holy, holy, and he wants to have a holy people. And his arms are open wide, but if I spurn him and walk in unrepentance, God disciplines those whom he loves. And he goes on and says this. Finally, they went forward. Says well, when, when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and they went all trembly inside. But they finally came in front of Aslan and said his voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. I love that. They now felt glad and quiet and it didn't seem awkward to them to stand and to say nothing. So we deal with God. Because we represent Christ, we are to live with joyful obedience. Back to 1 Corinthians 5, where it says this in verse 6 and following. Your boasting is not good. You're boasting about this immorality. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So realize it's not business as usual. So, so let me very quickly go through this. And that is the issue of two questions. The first question is, when do you exercise this church discipline? And then how? Number one is when. You exercise church discipline when it is outward, serious, and unrepentant. Let me explain that very quickly. When it is outward, that means it's known and talked about in the community. It's a known pattern of disobedience. First Timothy 3 says, no one should be an elder unless they're above reproach. And that doesn't mean sinless, thankfully, because nobody could be an elder. It, it means there, there's no outward behavior in their life that discredits the gospel of grace. And in other words, you can't say, well, I, I love Christ, but I am uh, horrific in my business dealings. I cheat people. Ah, that's just who I am. Or I, I love Christ, but I'm involved in all these Ponzi schemes that rob retirees of their money. But I tithe. No, you can't do that. So it's, it's, it's outward and it's a known thing. Secondly, it is serious. So let me explain. But by serious, I mean that, that it is an ongoing lifestyle pattern. Now, 1 Peter 4 says love covers the multitude of sins. I'll give you an outlandish example. And he's sitting here. I don't want to embarrass him. Uh, Carl Schooling's on our staff, and he's been here for 20-plus years. And he's a delightful, gracious man who is patient beyond words. And he's a man under control. He is. So this is a silly example. So tomorrow morning, we're having a meeting. And uh, Carl comes storming in and slams the door, kicks a chair, and starts cursing us out. Now, again, I don't think it's going to happen, but, if it, you know. And he says, I'm mad, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And he says a few more choice words, and he leaves. And, of course, we'd all be shocked beyond words. But, you know, 
I'd go to him. If somebody would go to him, I'd say, Carl, what, what's, what's going on, man? I know the Chiefs lost yesterday. He loves the Kansas City Chiefs, but, you know, get a grip, you know? Um, he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm dealing with this issue. And, well, you probably need to call the guys in the meeting and apologize, because, but that, that's just totally out of character. So, yeah, it's no, no big deal. Not really. But if he did it again two days later and the next week, and the next, all of a sudden, it's a life pattern. And that's what I call, I mean, by serious. It's ongoing. It's there. So, it's serious. Thirdly, it is unrepentant. It's just unrepentant. You, you confront someone, they say, no, not, not going to change, not going to do it. And I'm not, 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 not going to do it. It's interesting in the Bible, some things are dealt with, and I'm going, whoa. For example, in 1 Timothy, it says that, that, that a man is to be dealt with if he will not provide for his family. If he's a bum, you should deal with him in the church. You know, you're supposed to be working and providing for your family. In, in Titus, it says this. It talks about the, the, the wonder of good, clean speech. Listen to Titus chapter 3. It says, it says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want to, you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. Wow. They're excellent and profitable. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and they are worthless. But as for, you, as, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, do it a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Wow. Strong. So, so it's got to be open, serious, and unrepentant. Now, now, let me tell you how it's done. I'm going to do this very quickly. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, uh, says the following. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, so walk with you through this very quickly. First of all, you have a brother or sister, and they've sinned against you, and you get the log out of your eye, Matthew 7, and you get the speck out of their eye. And if they listen to you and they repent, it's party time. You have a meal together. You rejoice. You're glad. God has won the day. The Holy Spirit has anointed that conversation. Step one. Step two, if they do not listen and Paul quotes the Old Testament here in Deuteronomy. He says, you take two or three witnesses to establish the truth. Now, in our church, this body of believers, that's when the elders and pastors would get involved. You go to them and say, this is an issue we're having. And they may say, well, this deserves to be step two. Or they may say, 
uh, let's think about this for a while. But anyway, you, you take a pastor or an elder and, and a godly woman or somebody else with you, and, and you sit down and you say, well, this is what we have discovered, and this is the way this is happening. This is the way you're living, and, 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 and it's, it's, you're going to make shipwreck your faith, and it's going to bring destruction to you, and it's going to give the church of the risen Christ a bad reputation in our community. Therefore, we ask you to repent. You know what? If they repent, it's party time. Step to party time. If, if, if they do not repent after a series of months, usually, we go months. We dealt with this twice last year. We've got a couple of issues now. You, um, after they don't repent and you plead with them and plead with them, they have a chance at this point to come to an elder committee to, to give an account for why they're doing what they're doing. And we give every opportunity for people to come forward and talk and hear, have restoration. At that point, we have a Tuesday night prayer meeting here at the church once a month. At that point, we would tell it to the church. We'd say, this brother or sister is, is living against the standards of God, and we ask you, if you know them, to go to them and to plead with them to come back. And if you don't know them, even that, they're part of our body. So pray for their repentance. And so we pray for them for a series of months. Then the fourth and the final and very regrettable step, and this happened once in last spring, uh, we tell them that because they haven't repented, we're going to remove them from the roles of the church. We no longer consider them a brother in the Lord. Jesus says, treat them as if they're a, a, a non-believer. And what does that mean? Here's what it means in this church. We love them. We pray for them. We embrace them. We would say to them, please come to worship. Please come to hear the word. Please come to be among God's people and experience the energy of the Holy Spirit as we're in worship. Please come. But we would ask you officially to not take the Lord's Supper when the Lord's Supper's passed. Like it was, just, just let it go by. Because as your elders and pastors, and we were saying that this is outside the parameter of belief. And we're afraid that if you took the Lord's Supper, you may be drinking judgment upon yourself. Please be careful. Please be careful. And, and, and we, we invite them over for pizza. We watch sports with them. But as we're with them, it's not business as usual. Whenever you have a, a long, prolonged, more than just a minute conversation with them, part of the conversation will be, please know, let's say the guy's name is John. Please know, John, we are praying that you will repent and come back because inside the reality of Christ, there's life and joy and hope. And outside, there is destruction and, and the breaking of hearts and the ruin of reputations and eternal judgment. So we're pleading with you to come back. That's what we do. It's always in love. I need the body of Christ. I need people who speak to me and shepherd my soul. Because I want to end strong. I don't want to shipwreck. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for the, the Bible and thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you there are people who have just loved us in the, in, in, in the body of Christ. If we've been in the church for more than a few years, there have been people who just loved us and prayed for us and embraced us and we need that, Lord. I need community not only because you're a God of community and you have made me in your image, but I need community because I need people to help watch over my soul. So to that end, I pray, and I thank you for this day, and I thank you for these dear people. And I pray, God, that you would win victories this week in our lives as we walk before you in Jesus' name.
Amen.